Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 184, and today's guest is Andrew Bialecki, CEO and co-founder of Klaviyo. Klaviyo is one of the fastest growing companies in the tech industry, but the path to their current scale is a fascinating story. It's the story of a company that remained lean and bootstrapped for a very long stretch of time. For the first three years of the company, it was just Andrew and his co-founder, Ed Hallen, that handled everything. Even as they started the scale, it was a different philosophy versus what most startups decide to do in terms of rushing to raise venture capital as soon as possible. Instead, they focused on building a solid foundation for the business by iterating the platform to the point where they were solving real critical problems for companies. Clavio did eventually raise a modest round of venture capital over the years, but it wasn't until last year when they raised a major growth round of $150 million to add some high-octane gas to the fire. Today, Clavio has over 400 employees, and its platform helps growth-focused e-commerce brands drive more sales with super-targeted, highly relevant email, Facebook, and Instagram marketing campaigns. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Andrew's thoughts on space travel, the recent SpaceX launch, and the possibility of landing on Mars, the early foundational years of Andrew's career, a deep dive into the story of the early bootstrapping days at Clavio and how they started to get traction, why they finally decided to raise funding, lessons learned around scaling a company to over 400 employees, why resumes should be in chronological order versus reverse chronological, Advice for founders on how to stay organized and productive, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots and lots of great content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You will find lots of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus our popular Inside and CXO Briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Keith, thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you about Clavio, which is one of the, not one of the fastest growing tech companies in the Boston area, but it's one of the fastest growing tech companies in the country. I see your brand everywhere now, which is a great story. And I'm excited to d- dive in because it was largely bootstrapped for a really long stretch of time. So I'm excited to kind of get into the weeds of that. But before we do that, I, I want to talk to you about space travel. So you studied at Harvard physics, astronomy and astrophysics. And then I noticed you interned at MIT's Haystack Observatory. So when I was looking at your tweets and things, I noticed you were following SpaceX and some of the recent um, launches, including the human space flight that they did on May 30th. I just checked out a, um, if anyone is looking for another cool podcast to listen to, there's a podcast called Acquired, where they talk about different companies and the whole background story. So there's like a two hour episode on SpaceX. You know, our conversation right now is just, teed up by me listening to this podcast and just watching the space flight recently. So where do you think things are at, you know, space flight wise? Uh, there just seems to be a renewed energy. And then do you think we'll ever make it to Mars? Oh, it's awesome. Uh, so first of all, it's, it's super exciting stuff. I mean, it's been so long since, I guess we've seen a space launch on U.S. soil. So it's uh, super exciting to see that and, and all the innovation of SpaceX, like, you know, I mean, uh, boosters that'll land themselves, all that kind of jazz. Um, so, uh, anyway, space travel, like I always look at a a lot of the way I think about the world is in terms of primitives or building blocks. So, you know, the ability to reliably, uh, you know, um, launch rockets that have payloads, whether they're human or otherwise, and just get them in orbit, uh, or even get them outside of the, uh, the, um, the earth's orbit, like that just has to become a building block. Um, and so, you know, when you see it this first time, it's kind of like, you know, imagine like the first car rolling off of like. Model T line, uh, it's really awesome, uh, but then it's fun when it becomes, you know, I think it's, it's even happened with SpaceX. It's becoming so routine, you stop just even thinking about it. So that was kind of my initial reaction: is like, wow, it's awesome to be here at the start, but to know that it's this is going to become so uh, routine, it just becomes mundane, and becomes part of life, and that's that's probably a key part to getting to something like Mars. Um, you know, I, I think studying uh, everybody that gets into physics, you kind of everybody either goes big or small. So you get people that go small, they get into like. Um, you know, atoms and quantum mechanics and, you know, subatomic particles, or you go big. Um, so I was one of those people that got, you know, basically got the pitch on, Hey, here's why astronomy is cool. And, you know, it doesn't like stars and, uh, black holes and galaxies and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
So I got pulled into that, but you start to realize just the magnitude uh, of space and the amount of energy required and the distances and just, you know, how much of a vacuum space is and just all of the constraints. It's, it's really like crazy. Um, so yeah, look, I think it's, it's awesome to have, I mean, Mars is a great goal because it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's big enough that it's, uh, you know, feels really difficult, but it's not impossible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it's one of the things I have a kind of philosophy of, I'd love to peer a little bit into the future and see what happens next. Um, so I hope that we get to Mars in my lifetime. That'd be really fun. It'd be so cool. So cool to actually see that happen. And like, obviously the respect for Elon Musk is, you know, out of this world. And then when you listen to this podcast, you just realize how much of the weeds he was in, in terms of figuring out the physics and rockets, like, like he, there was part of the story they were sharing was he was reading like a, a Russian space rocket uh, document. Like it's just, and this was stuff he was doing like right after PayPal, right? Like this was his mission. He wanted to do this. So it's just, it's, it's amazing what he's accomplished. And you learn about commercializing space travel too. And why now that it's privatized, it's saving a lot of money because it's, you know, a different, uh, it's a business now versus, you know, purely government funded. So mm -hmm. anyways, let's, let, let's rewind the clock. So where, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, let's see. So I grew up, uh, just outside of Boston. Um, and, uh, yeah, I grew up there, uh, my entire childhood. My folks were both from New England. So, uh, we had a lot of family around here. Um, and then as a kid, uh, geez, uh, I think the way I describe myself is extremely organized. Uh, I was kind of one of those nerdy in the sports, but very organized. Uh, you know, I was the kind of kid that, uh, when I was 10 or 12, like I had a couple of younger siblings, uh, it took all the books in our house and turned them into a library with a checkout system. And really, just, <laughs> really, and I probably, I don't know really why I did this, but, uh, finding systems or like creating order from chaos was like a big thing of mine. So, um, I think we all grew up with, uh, I think it was, they were, I think they called them erector sets, but it was a lot of like the tinkering building things. Uh, all that stuff was like really fun to me. So did you, uh, charge late fees on your home? library? I, I don't think so. Although I think I, I think I kept tabs of like, you know, how many, you know, how many, uh, I don't know whatever it is like nickels, dimes, quarters pe people owed. But I think, yeah, eventually like just like all good libraries, I forgave those fees after a little while. Yeah. Something like that. So we talked about uh, what you studied at Harvard. So, so what were, you know, first job out of college? Like what'd you do afterwards? Yeah. So uh, I majored in uh, physics in school. Uh, I actually almost majored in the classics. So I almost, I loved writing and reading. Uh, I learned that those, those classes were really early in the morning. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a late riser. I really got into math and physics instead, um, but love both. Um, so out of school, I actually, you know, I, I'm a big, uh, believer that, you know, life kind of happens. There's like, when things don't go your way, uh, it's usually for the best. Um, that hasn't always been true, but it was definitely true out of school. I really, uh, for a while when I was graduating, I don't know why I want to do this. I really want to get into strategy consulting. So I interviewed at all the regular places and got rejected from all of them, uh, which was turned out to be great because it meant that I was like, okay, well, I was also interested in um, you know, software engineering. I'd actually, I had gotten into CS really late uh, in college. Uh, my roommate had said, you know, uh, after my junior year said, hey, why don't you, like, you know, he's from Seattle, said, why don't you come intern at Microsoft for a summer? You haven't really done any CS, but maybe you'll, maybe you'll fall in love with it. Um, and so I really did. Um, it was a really like formative, uh, couple months for me. And, uh, yeah, so I ended up working at this, um, this company called Applied Predictive Technologies down in, uh, DC or just outside of DC in Virginia. And it was probably a 30, 40 person company when I joined. And, uh, we were all about, uh, we were working with, uh, you know, fortune 500 companies, big retailers, big banks, big box stores, and we were helping them both understand uh, their different store locations. So for instance, we had some algorithms that, um, you know, we sold to Starbucks to help them figure out where to put the next Starbucks. So, you know, when you go to those spots, you're like, geez, why are there three Starbucks in the same corner? Uh, that was us, those, that was our machine learning, spitting those, you know, spitting out those locations. Um, but it was a mix of that. And then I started on a product there that was really about helping those businesses that had, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million customers uh, understand who those customers were. So I remember working with like grocery store chains and it's, Hey, uh, these are, you know, the family shoppers. These are like, you know, the single young adults. Um, and it was, it was super interesting. Um, so, uh, that's, that's a lot of how I got into, uh, in the genesis of Clavio, you know, uh, data science, database tech, and then especially like how you marry that, how you build really interesting, you know, user experiences and things like that. All right. So it was great foundational experience. And it's interesting that 
you, you would have instead been a McKenzie Booz Allen type of consultant, but uh, didn't work out. And there you go. It's crazy. <laughs> Always interesting to see how things like that happen. So uh, afterwards, you you worked with an amazing team at Performable. So talk about that experience. Yeah. So um, so I decided after a couple of years uh, that you know it was, it was kind of this was 2008, 2009, 2010. It was kind of like early days of when um, you know Y Combinator, tech stars were just kind of growing up. Uh, startups were hot, and uh, you know I was down in DC, and I really got interested. It's like you know I wonder what it'd be like to work for a really small company. Uh, you know, the, the, the company I was at, um, uh, APT was amazing in terms of the culture, uh, but it had started to grow. It was probably a hundred, 150 people. Um, and I was always curious, like, man, you know, what's a small company like, what's it like at five or six people? So, you know, I decided I was going to be East coast, uh, you know, Washington DC had a little bit of a scene, but it was really Boston or New York. And, uh, so I remember I went, you know, I, I flew back up to Boston. I interviewed a couple of companies and, uh, really what I was pattern matching for was I wanted to find the best CEO and the best CTO I could that had kind of been there and done that. Um, and so in addition to interviewing a, you know, a bunch of I think, you know, really successful Boston companies, I just said, hey, which leadership team kind of gets it the best? And uh, everybody said, um, you know, David Cancel and Elias Torres, like they, they get it. I actually made a bit of a mistake. I interviewed uh, with them in Boston. Uh, I thought they were in Boston proper, but their actual offices were up in Amesbury, which is, for those that don't know, uh, you know the region, like almost to New Hampshire. But I was like, well, they have a master's address. How far away can they be? Um, and I was so in love with them. I said, okay, that's cool. Like, I'll go wherever your offices are. So uh, I remember interviewing with them. That was awesome. And then, uh, yeah, I joined them. We spent about six months of a long commute. But it was like the best time, best startup experience. Um, really just getting in the weeds, you know, Elias was the, you know, as an engineer, if you want to start a company, one of the first things you probably get nervous about is, geez, when I build software, like if it breaks, like who wakes up in the middle of the night and fixes it? Um, and so what was awesome was I had a CTO that was like, look, I'll backstop you. But at the end of the day, like, I'm going to hold you responsible for all the stuff that you built. Um, and this was early days of even like cloud computing and AWS. So learning how to use all that technology was really new. Um, so I spent a lot of time figuring that stuff out. And then, uh, you know, for those that don't know who David Cancel is, he's just a great product customer centric person. Um, and he put a lot of words to things that I kind of always felt or believed, um, and just, you know, spending hours, you know, with him and the rest of the product team, just thinking about what kinds of products we should build, who are our customers, how do you interview companies? I learned a ton from both those guys. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, it's just the great, great founding team. Uh, David's been on our podcast before and, you know, HubSpot, obviously, you know, that, that, that success story was already on its way to success. But when David, you know, took over and was the chief product officer, it really catapulted and obviously Drift is onto some, uh, some really special, amazing things. So, so what did you do after that? So I was, um, it was about, after about a year at Performable, uh, a family friend of mine said, Hey, uh, you know, there's this, this, um, this startup that I'm um, the CFO for, part-time CFO doing the books for, but they're looking for, you know, a CTO, a head of engineering. And it was, and I looked at that as a chance, uh, you know, so it was this company called Proctech and it was a chance for me to say, okay, well, I have this kind of safety net that was Elias that would fix up all my mistakes. What would it be like to go out on my own? Um, so I said, okay, so I, I kind of vetted that. Um, it was a really interesting company. It was in the learning space. They were trying to build uh, a new, uh, they call them, uh, technical terms of learning management system and LMS, they were building that for uh, basically digital software. So they had this idea, um, they actually started with LinkedIn. It was about, you know, how do we teach employees to use LinkedIn? So whether they're doing recruiting or maybe they're looking for people in their network, they reach out to for, you know, sales or other kinds of opportunities. You know, LinkedIn was this kind of tool that a lot of people didn't understand really how to use, mm -hmm. uh, other than you had a profile. So uh, they had some interesting ideas around, hey, what if, you know, for tools like that, that, you know, say at a company that has a thousand employees, maybe everybody should get trained up on it. How would you teach them about that? And then because it's a digital, you know, because it's a website um, and because it has some APIs, we can actually check your work and see if you actually learned, you know, learn the skill that we wanted you to, uh, you know, that we were testing you on. So today, now in education, they're starting to call this technique like adaptive learning, where uh, you know, we basically give you, you know, we teach you something and we ask you to do a little exercise. We check your work and then based on how you do, we either ask you to do it again or we take you on to the next lesson. We were kind of like early-ish in doing some of that, uh, really focused on these, you know, products where it was easy to check your work. 
build like testing quizzes. Um, so anyways, that was interesting. Like uh, both the first two companies that, uh, you know, applied for the technologies and then Performable were really successful. Um, RockTech wasn't, uh, it was a great team, uh, but that was the first one where I learned like, okay, geez, what's, what's the grind really feel like? Mm -hmm. um, so I always look like, hey, two out of three, this wasn't a big success. Uh, but I still learned a ton. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time partnering up with both um, LinkedIn and a little bit Salesforce. Um, and that was fascinating. I actually learned a ton from that in terms of how you partner up with like a public company. Um, so anyways, I kind of look at it as like, hey, every experience, you learn something away from it. You know, there's no such thing as failure. Just make sure you have some good learning moments. All right. Well, let's talk about Clavio. So let's, we're going to go deep. Uh, so let's, so talk about the background story of the company. Like, uh, like how did the idea come to fruition? Like, like how did it just even get started? Yeah. So while I was at, um, you know, uh, APT and performable and rock tech, I'd always been, uh, you know, spinning up my own little side projects. Um, sometimes I'd try to start little businesses off of them, but mostly just for fun. And so, you know, I remember when I was down in DC, uh, you know, I built a little web scraper, uh, of kayak information. I don't know if that was legal or not, but anyways, to try to find cheap flights. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was at performable, I built this little side project called, um, running sneaks. Uh, was this at the time, you know, there were these apps, uh, map my run and run keeper, uh, and they were really good for all of your everyday runs, but there was nothing that was kind of your ledger of all your, you know, running accomplishments like road races and things like that. So, um, out of all that, I'd always spun up these little apps and I had fun doing them and I'd post them to, you know, websites like Hacker News or Reddit and just, you know, get, you know, a couple hundred users and people excited about them. Um, but every time I'd always run into the same problem, uh, which was I'd build these things. And then if I, you know, if I, for instance, like if I sat down with you, Keith, and explained to you how it works, you'd be like, okay, I understand. I'm like, well, that doesn't scale. I mean, because I can't be in front of you all hours a day. It's like, we're going to scale to thousands, you know, millions of people. And I realized like, Telling, telling your story, explaining your project at scale, uh, that was like a really tough problem. And, uh, and you want to do it in some kind of personalized way. Um, you know, because for instance, I probably, first, like probably first thing I asked you is like, hey, Keith, do you run it all? Things like that. And those were such easy questions to ask, but like they were hard to ask in like a digital, you know, context or, or to really automate. So anyways, from those, um, from those experiences and then just the products I'd worked on for my you know, day job, it was, I had this passion for how do you help people tell their stories when they're asleep, when they're not around, like at scale. And that became kind of the genesis of Clavio. And um, we thought about this as there were like three things we wanted to bring together. Uh, we wanted to build really great content creation tools. Uh, so you can think of like, we focused on email because that's what everybody said was the medium that mattered. But it's like, how do you design great emails? So everybody knows like that's a huge pain in the butt. How do you then like help make uh, that content or those experiences really like enrich them with data? So we had to build this like data warehousing tech to pull all that stuff in. And then uh, I had this dream, something that we're working on today, which is how could you infuse that with uh, you know machine learning and data science and not in this buzzwordy kind of way, but a lot of it is about running experiments. So how do I know, you know, just the same way that when I, you know, were to, if I were to pitch you on one of those products, I'm going to, I'm going to, do all these little micro experiments of how I explain it, pick different words, try to customize it to you. And then I'm going to judge based on how you react, right? You know, your facial cues, like whether you actually engage, uh, you know, whether it worked or not. Um, and I always believe that like that should be part of what those communication tools were. So we call it, you know, we call Clavio a marketing platform, but really we think that it's just like, it's a way to communicate or talk with, you know, whoever your users or customers are. Well, what's, what's fascinating is how much emails come full circle, right? Like, you just hear all marketers talking about you need to own your channel, right? You need to own your email, email, grow your email, right? It's and when you were building this, this was started in 2012. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember hearing that buzz around email, like what's old is new again. And I agree. Like, I mean, being able to control my communications with job seekers or my customers is gold. Whereas if I count on leveraging social media, those platforms have been diminishing year after year after year. So it's yeah, that was one of our, that was one of our big bets when we started, um, was I, I just seen, you know, you'd seen these other companies that had built up, I think it was around the time that, you know, Zynga had built this empire on top of Facebook and all of a sudden that didn't really exist. And, uh, so we just decided that, Hey, whatever, you know, uh, media channels, platforms we're going to build on, they had to be open. Um, things that just like you said, uh, that a business or a person could own or control. They wouldn't have to worry about in five or 10 years, would those things still be, 
you know, open to them. And then, yeah, to be honest, email is one of my favorite um, uh, media or types of media because it's so flexible. I mean, it's just HTML, um, but yet it's, it's so, there's been so little innovation in the last five, 10 years. Um, so it's definitely, it's a kind of a side hustle for me is like, Hey, how do we make email a better, um, you know, more enriched, um, uh, just kind of uh, medium of expression. Now, what I think is important is this part of the story, uh, because when you started out, I think it was the first three years, how many employees did you have? Oh man, the first three years we had, well, we had, I guess zero employees. It was just the two of us. Right. <laughs> so, so for entrepreneurs who are listening to this, the first three years of Clavio, it was yourself and Ed, the two founders. And you know, you didn't say, okay, we've got this idea. Let's pitch it to some angels, get some C capital, raise our A, B, C, whatever. Uh, so, so talk about that. Like the first three years of building out this tech and getting customers, early adopters support, which I think you were handling. <laughs> yeah. You get to do a little bit of everything. Um, Man, I, I think Ed, Ed and I both look back on it uh, very fondly now. I don't, I don't know exactly what it was like in the middle. I think it's been such a great out period of my life. Um, when we, yeah, when we started, so our story was the first products that we built or the first set of features was really about um, analytics and taking a business's data together and allowing you to just do segmentation on it. So the simple use case was, hey, if you had a business and you had a couple hundred, uh, couple hundred customers, a couple thousand customers, we could help you slice and dice it to figure out like, what kinds of segments you have. And so our early product development was very iterative. We actually, our first couple customers just bought us for analytics. Um, and we found out probably seven, eight months into that first year, you know, somebody asked us, Hey, you know, could you, could you guys export the results, uh, of these, you know, segments we're building, could we export those email addresses so we could, uh, you know, uh, use them for marketing. And I remember asking, um, you know, that, that customer, I said, Hey, uh, that sounds great, but like, where do you want to send it to? Um, and I think they said, oh, we're going to send it to MailChimp or we're going to send it to Constant Contact. And at the time, I think they were paying us something like $100 a month. And I asked them, I said, uh, that sounds great, but what if I just like built uh, Constant Contact or MailChimp for you? Like, do, do you have any special allegiance to it? And uh, they said, no, 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 we don't really have any special allegiance if you could do that. But in fact, we don't need that much. That much. So yeah, if you, can, if you could just build an email editor, uh, if you do some automation and if you can guys get, if you can figure out all this stuff, we'll, we'll cloudy pay that. And I remember asking, them, I said, well, how much do you pay them? I said, Oh, like $200 a month. And I remember immediately after I got off the phone, I called Ed. I said, Ed, I got it, man. Like all we have to do is build, you know, this, this, these other companies and we can triple, uh, the price that we're asking, uh, we're, that we're charging people. So, um, anyways, that was the first, you know, I must think the first couple of years, it was all just about building out that kind of initial, uh, product footprint. Um, but as we did it, I mean, there were two things. Number one, Ed was awesome at talking with customers. And I always thought about it. It's like the difference between sales. Now there's a big difference between, you know, people talk about what is sales? What is customer success? To us, it was always the same. You're just working with people. Um, and whether they're paying us, you know, you know, whether they're paying us tomorrow or they're already paying us today, uh, it was just about understanding their use cases and getting really close to them. And, uh, we had a very iterative model. Like we, we love to just get close with, um, any business. And if we felt like their use case was something we could do 10 or a hundred times, I mean, if, if other people would care, then we would just work on building that out. Um, so, you know, our, our routine was, uh, Ed was an early bird. Uh, I was, I was later. So, you know, we, we, uh, we meet up for a couple of hours in the middle of the day, but otherwise, you know, I was just, you know, had my headphones on, was just cranking out code. Uh, Ed was talking to cu with customers and, uh, you know, Little by little, I think that end of that first year, we maybe had, you know, 20 customers. I think by the end of the second year, we were up to maybe about a hundred. And by the end of the third year, we maybe gotten up to like two or three hundred. So how did you get from 20 customers to a hundred though? If it was just the two of you, like, how did you even, was it word of mouth? Like, how did you even get to that point? Yeah, great question. Um, so our, uh, you know, our acquisition strategy in the early, early days, after we hustled for a couple of customers, um, one of the, one of the bets that I had was we were, we were building uh, marketing software that was all about the data that you had. And so the question was, where does that data live? Um, and one of our bets was, you know, people didn't just have databases that were kind of their bespoke, you know, thing they'd hired some, you know, they had a developer build or a consultant build, but instead everybody was starting to use, um, you know, SaaS, they were using other services. And those services all had APIs. So the, the data was actually there and you could connect to it. Um, but we just had to build some of those connectors. So one of the first bets we made was we said, hey, what kind of data do we think people are going to care about? 
and it uh, it was ranks again. It was uh, you know it was payment data from things like um, Stripe or Braintree. Uh, it was e-commerce data from platforms like Shopify, Magento, BigCommerce, WooCommerce. Uh, it was CRM data from you know companies like Salesforce. And it was it was just everywhere. Um, so what I decided was, hey, let's just build basically these connectors into 20 or 30 of these platforms. And then we go to each of those platforms and uh, we ask folks and say, hey, you know, number one, do you build marketing tools? And a lot of them were like, no, we don't. That's not our core business. And we said, okay, cool. So, hey, we built this marketing platform. It can it probably solves a problem for your customers where they want to use this data as part of like how they build experiences, um, you know, whether it's over email, um, et cetera. And we said, hey, like, why don't, why don't we just partner up? Like when somebody calls, you know, when they, when they, you know, write just for email or part of the sales process, if they need help with this, can we just be your, you know, uh, your kind of preferred provider? Um, and, uh, yeah, that worked. I mean, that really worked great. So this was a bit of like, let's plant, I think we planted, you know, 40, 50, you know, uh, seeds and like, let's see which ones bloom. Um, and that works great. That, that got us uh, really far. Got it. Okay. So where did you kind of hit that inflection point where like, wow, this has the opportunity to be a really big business and you still decided to do kind of like the, let's bootstrap this for a long period of time before raising, I don't know when you did, did your angel, but you did an A round in 2017. So this is, you know, five years after starting the company. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. People ask me that a lot. It's like, Hey, when did you guys know you made it or you're going to make it? Um, you know, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't, I, I still kind of feel the same way today. Um, I don't know if we ever thought Clavio would be a huge business. Um, you know, we were, our, our style was much more, we just like to set goals that felt a little bit out of reach. So when we had a hundred customers or 10 customers, it was like, how do we get to a thousand? Um, so we'd always try to set goals that were maybe, you know, 50, hundred X, wherever we were, that felt like insane, but at the same time, they weren't so outrageous that they felt impossible. Um, and every time we get close, like I, I would just bump it up a little bit. So, you know, when we got to hundred customers, it was like, okay, well now how do we get to 10,000 and it just kept spiraling from there. So I think Ed used to get a little annoyed with that, but, uh, you know, over time he just got used to it. He's like, okay, yeah, I guess we're just, the, the bar is always going to get raised. Um, I think the probably the biggest inflection point we had, uh, I think this was, I think this was 20, 2015, but I remember we started January, 2015 and I think we were about a million dollar a year business. And I remember, you know, Ed and I had this, we kind of set goals for the year. Um, and, you know, we both kind of, you know, we debated whether or not we'd get to three or 4 million that year, which at the time we had no concept for whether that was good or not. We just like, well, I don't know that, you know, based on what we did last year, that seems possible. Um, and I remember we ended that year at around five. Wow. And so that was, <laughs> that was probably the moment, you know, at the end of the year, it's like, okay, gosh, both of us thought we were being aggressive and neither of us was right. Uh, that, okay, maybe we're really onto something. We should try to go faster. Okay. At what point did you decide to raise capital? Cause still you've got a profitable business. It's exceeding revenue expectations. You're starting to hire and grow yet. You still didn't say, okay, let's go talk to the VCs and raise, you know, a big chunk of money. And then we're going to go for it. Yeah. So I'd always been, you know, and I have been pretty adverse to venture capital. Um, you know, when we'd start again, it was like the heyday of, you know, startup accelerators and this, you know, Hey, you can raise a you know seed round, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I had even done, uh, we, we had this bad stretch early on where, uh, we, you know, there were, there were all of these startup programs that we'd wanted to be part of in our first six months, like before we were real business. And it was kind of like those, you know, those consulting interviews I did, we just kept applying to them and kept getting rejected. And we were like, man, we, we really feel like we should be a good fit for these. Uh, but we just, and so I, I think I was a little biased based on getting rejected so many times. I was like, there's no way. I mean, if we can't get into these, uh, you know, um, these summer programs that, uh, you know, MIT was running or other local VCs were running, like what chance do we have actually them writing us a real check. So, uh, I was kind of of two minds about it. On the one hand, we're like, how are we ever going to pitch this thing? Like nobody's ever going to believe us that this is, a, this is a real company. Um, the other part of it was, um, both Ed and I have come from, uh, backgrounds where we had small businesses in our families. Um, so my, um, you know, my extended family, uh, you know, um, on my mom's side, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of my aunts and uncles were part of this small business that had been around for 60 or 70 years. And, um, you know, I was, that was really inspiring to me that it was like, they, they'd spent the time to really build it up and it was a sustainable thing and it meant jobs for people. 
And so I always have this kind of natural aversion to let's not just build a business that burns cash and then who knows where it goes. Like, let's see if we can really build a real business. Um, so, so for the first couple of years, that was our kind of thesis was like, let's just see if we can make this a real business around, you know, the end of 2014, 2015. So this is now you know, about three years into uh, building Clavio, we got it to profitability. And that was, I remember that being kind of a weird moment for us. We were like, okay, kind of mission accomplished. Like, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I sat down and we talked about it and I don't think either of us really felt like it didn't feel like a big decision to raise a seed round at that point. Um, cause we'd heard that it's like, you know, it, did, it didn't really commit you to anything. It didn't mean that you had to go public or anything. It was, it was kind of a middle round uh, or it was kind of stepping stones, maybe real venture capital. And, uh, the big, the big pain point we did have though, was we were growing every month, but we had this annoying problem where, uh, we'd grow revenue. So we'd have, you know, more budget to hire two or three people, but every month we had to make hiring decisions based on how much we made the month before. And I'd had some annoying situations happen where I'd had to pass on hiring some engineers or designers or other folks because we literally just were like, oh, you're like two months too early. Like, can you come back a little later? Uh, and people like, no, that's not how my life works. Right. So uh, I remember asking, uh, you know, our network. Um, I think I remember asking Elise and David, I said, hey, who do you guys like in Boston? And that's how they, that's how I got introduced to Accomplice. And uh, it was great. I mean, at that point we were, you know, I said we were, we were clearly off the ground. So I knew that raising an angel round, a seed round wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be too bad. Yeah. Like TJ Mahoney was the one who alerted me to your company first. He's like, you got to watch Clavio. They're, they're going to be ridiculously large company. I'm like, who, 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 what? And then uh, obviously watching since then just been phenomenal. So you did go on to raise uh, an A round 2017, but then you raised this series B round that was announced last year, 150 million. So talk about the process of raising capital. Cause you had such a strong business that was originally bootstrapped. So, you know, raising capital with that scenario is very different than, Hey, we've got this idea might work bet on us. You, you know, you had a foundation of, no, this is working. We need fuel to light the fire more. Yeah, uh, totally. It was, it was kind of a weird, um, I remember we talked about it, you know, a couple months before it happened. Uh, I think it was in the, in the spring of, 2019. And, uh, it was a bit weird because we're like, how do you, how do you even do this? Uh, I kind of had to ask our, you know, um, uh, I had to ask our board members, some of our network, I'm like, how, how do you even go raise around? But, uh, yeah, I mean, our, our thinking was a couple fold, like one, uh, we knew things were going really well and we wanted some, uh, additional capital to experiment with growth. So we've always had this mantra of like, we want to run, grow our business as fast as possible, but still run it, uh, break even. Like we felt like that was a good, kind of financial discipline was we're not going to burn a lot of cash. Um, we can decide to do it for, for experiments, but in general, we're going to try to run our business profitably or break even. Like we're, we had this mantra, like we're going to invest every dollar back into Clavio. Um, but we felt like we had some experiments we really wanted to try to run, but we just, in that case, it would have helped to have a little bit more of a cash cushion. Um, so that was one part of it. Another, actually, you know, a, a big reason to do it was we felt like, um, you know, Ed and I were our two board members plus, um, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, our series A investors and, uh, you know, to be honest, we all kind of felt like we could use some more, uh, experienced folks around the table. Like if we wanted this eventually to be a public company, which was something we'd started to talk about, uh, just what would it take to get there? And we felt like having some other voices around the table would be good. And, um, you know, investors were one way to do that. Um, so yeah, that, that was the big, that was a big part of it. I mean, another, uh, another smaller piece of it was, uh, we now had, I mean, we were, we were years into the business, um, you know, even though Ed and I had been there uh, for, gosh, what was it, eight years, we had a lot of folks that had now been there for four or five years. And, um, you know, I, I felt like it felt like the right thing to do to give them um, some liquidity. And that's something that I feel strongly about for our company is, uh, you know, I think there's, being at a startup is great. There's awesome learning experiences. Um, you know, I think like the financial rewards of it, hopefully there are things that should come to fruition a little bit faster. And I think one of the opportunities we had here too, was to just help out some folks that have been here for a long time. And, you know, a bunch of Clavios I know that it's like, either they, you know, got some payoffs from student loans, they got put down payment on a house. And that, and that was a little, that wasn't a driving motivation, but that was definitely a sweeter too. Yeah, no, that's gotta be gratifying to see that people are able to actually get some liquidity and do those kind of major events in their lives. So talk about the the name Clavio. Like where where did that come from? Yeah, our name Clavio. Um, it comes from the word clavia, which is uh, the Spanish word for a pin, a plug. It had it has this connotation um, as like a uh, a mountaineering spike. Um, so if you're climbing a mountain and you imagine you know that rock climber that's you know 
uh, got their hammer and they're jamming that spike in, so they're gonna tie onto it and hoping for dear life that thing doesn't fall out. Um, that's a clavia. And so uh, anyways, we took a couple of letters, we rearranged them, but we like Clavio as this idea of software that helped you accomplish something really tough, but also something like you had to have, like you'd fall off the mountain and die if you were missing it. So anyways, that's where that comes from. Now, what's the current state of Clavio? Like talk about kind of the state of where you guys are at now, as far as what your company does, size of the team, everything else. Um, so yeah, so where we're at today, uh, we have about 400, uh, Clavios in Boston, London, and then we have a fair number of people that were hiring remote. Um, and we have about, uh, 40,000 customers and geez, I think, you know, double or triple that in terms of just users of our platform. Um, so Clavio, again, like we talked about, it's fundamentally, it's our first product is around marketing. It's a marketing platform that helps, um, marketers, but really a lot of small business owners, just people tell their stories better. Um, and our mission is to help them grow. So at the end of the day, it's about helping you tell your story, but in a way that you can actually measure. So whether that's through sales, uh, revenue, hiring that next person, releasing that next product, um, that's what we're all about. So yeah, so where we're at today, so, uh, you know, we're, we're growing really well. Um, I think we're seeing customers, we more than doubled last year, and I think we'll more than double this year. Um, you know, one of the big trends, especially with, um, uh, COVID-19, you know, there's a ton of small businesses trying to understand how to bring their businesses online, uh, and they need help right now. Um, that's been our message, you know, from basically mid-March is there's so many people that need help today. They're smart, they're motivated, but they just literally need somebody to guide them through that process. And whether it's our products or our people, we've got to be there for them. Uh, you know, and then, uh, uh, similarly, I think there's a lot of other parts of life that are coming online right now that we're starting to see also enter like, you know, the clay ecosystem saying, Hey, are, are you guys a good tool for me? So companies that are companies or organizations that are in education, healthcare, uh, different kinds of entertainment, gaming, media, um, you know, all those folks need help too. So our mission is to help people grow or help businesses grow, um, and help them communicate with their customers just as if, you know, uh, just like I mentioned, just like they were sitting right in front of you. So the same way that you and I can have a conversation and you're like, okay, I understand what you're talking about. Can we do that? What if I'm not available? Can we do that in a purely automated, you know, at, at scale? Um, that's what we're all about. So, so what has been like the biggest learning experience, you know, scaling a company? I mean, you, you talked about you're over 400 employees now, like, like, so what have been kind of that, those lessons learned? Yeah. Um, I get to ask this question a fair amount. Um, the, I think if I look back, you know, my, my greatest learning has been, uh, is you have to constantly be thinking six, 12 months ahead or a couple steps ahead. Um, you know, I think my job, what's been most important to Clavio has changed so much. Um, I've been at my best when I've been thinking ahead and what I need to do or change to be successful. Uh, and I think I've made my biggest mistakes when I've gotten behind that curve. So that's been a really big learning for me personally. I think then just in general as, at a startup, you realize everybody else uh, at your company is doing the exact same thing. Everybody's trying to figure out how they can get six months, 12 months ahead. Um, and sometimes they'll ask for it explicitly. Hey, what does it take? Other times they'll just see through their actions um, or sometimes, you know, just like uh, their body language, like implicitly, Hey, what, what do I have to do to be successful? You'll notice that they're just kind of like they're struggling and it's because it's not because they're doing anything wrong. They're just doing what made them successful six months ago. And it's time to evolve. Um, so it's, you know, even at, you know, with 400 folks today, 400 Clavios, it's how can we help people get there? Um, and you know, a lot of the, what's in the future that maybe is really clear in my head, uh, it's helping people see what that is. Cause a lot of people can figure out for themselves what they need to do, but they need to know where we're headed. Um, and I've always been great at communicating that something I'm definitely working on. Well, as an ex extension of that, like to talk about the culture of the company. So, Clavio has been recognized by Inc. Magazine multiple times as a you know best place to work, um, and I've I've heard you speak other times about you know how important culture was. So 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 talk about how that has been kind of a a real key part of building a successful business. Yeah, you know I've, I had a conversation probably about a year ago um, uh, with the CEO of a public company, and he and he said something that really resonated with me. He said. You know, when you go public, you get the, uh, the investors that you deserve. And that was in that context. I, I've been, since taken that language, and I think, you know, you get the culture that you deserve. 
So I think companies, CEOs, you end up, you end up with the culture that you deserve by how you act um, and the things that you um, recognize other people for. So just as an example, um, you know, we've talked a lot at our company about um, being adaptable, um, that change is a constant and that we have to live that and embrace that and that things are just, they're going to change. Because we've celebrated that adaptability, uh, you know, when uh, we all had to work from home, uh, you know, with um, coronavirus, uh, it made it that much easier for us. Like we had people that were adaptable. And so that felt a lot smoother than it would have been otherwise. Um, I think it's the same kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quirky. Uh, I think I'm kind of creative. Um, we'd like to promote that inside of our culture. And so, uh, you know, when it comes up with, hey, what are some uh, kind of weird ideas for, uh, you know, ways that we can celebrate big accomplishments or fun kinds of clubs that we have, uh, we have a lot of people that are just like that. So I'll tell you, on the flip side, I'll tell you one thing that I'm not, haven't been great at, um, that I think resonates in our culture is I, I tend to jump around a lot when I'm working on projects. Um, and I tend to get 80% of the way there and then I'll always finish things off. Thankfully, I've been able to kind of buttress that with a bunch of people that are at Clayfield that are really good at finishing off those loose ends. Um, but that's one thing where sometimes when, you know, I, I see a project that we're working on, I'm like, man, why didn't we finish this off? I'm like, oh, you know, I kind of got the culture that we deserve because it wasn't the thing that I was great at. So it's something that I need, still need to grow and learn too. Now, one of the cool perks that I've noticed through the years is every year I would see this entire employee road trip to go see a Patriots like road game. So, uh, or away game. Um, that is pretty cool. Cause you guys would like charter a jet too. Like it wasn't like, I mean, it was a, it was, it was a pretty elaborate type of thing. I, I'm, I'm normally a very frugal person. Um, <laughs> you know, we have, because we work with, um, you know, a lot of, uh, retail businesses, um, you know, black Friday and cyber Monday are our two biggest days of the year. Mm -hmm. So our, you know, everybody, our engineering team in terms of scaling our systems, uh, our customer support team in terms of just helping the number of businesses that come to us the last, you know, days, sometimes hours before Black Friday and Summer Money saying, I need to get started right now. Uh, it's just insane. Uh, so they do an incredible amount of work in the couple months leading up. And so there's always this big, like collective sigh of woof, relief after we get through, you know, into early December. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, you know, we had, we'd set all new all time highs, uh, all sorts of records. And, uh, I remember going to our head of product and head of engineering and said, all right, you can do whatever you want. Like, just don't tell me what it is. Just, you know, figure it out. Uh, well, it had, turns out our head of product, um, is super creative. I, I don't know how he, uh, number one, knew to call somebody, uh, you know, at the Patriots and two, I don't even know how you get a private plane, like a 737. Uh, it's, it's, I, there are people now at Clavia that have those uh, folks' phone numbers um, you know, on their speed dial, but I don't know what those are. Um, but anyways, they proposed this trip uh, of flying the Buffalo. And uh, normally I'd be like, what? Are you kidding me? But uh, it just, it felt right. And uh, yeah, it's the kind of thing we won't get to do forever. So it was, it's, it, we've done that now once to Buffalo. And then the year after, um, turned out the Patriots were playing in Miami. So we went down to Miami for that game where they lost on that last second kind of crazy kickoff. Uh, so that was, I think it was still a great time, but that was, that was kind of a crazy moment. Um, so yeah, it's been a cool tradition. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how long we can keep it up. At some point we'll be renting out whole stadiums. And I just don't, I don't, I don't know if the fans of any team are gonna, or the Patriots are going to allow us to do that. Yeah, that's funny. That's a great, great story. Now um, let's talk about resumes, kind of just random topic that I normally don't talk about on podcasts, but you know, being that, you know, my background is recruiting and hiring. I thought this would be relevant. So um, you said, I think it was on Twitter. It's saying resume should be in chronological order. What, like why? Like most people are like, well, it should be reverse chronological. Why would you do it in chronological? Yeah. I, I think it's crazy that people uh, judge folks based on, you know, just the, where they are right now, uh, where they've been. Um, you know, one of the things we look for at Clavio is people who are high slope. We call that high slope as in like, you know, a line has a slope. And so that means it's going up into the right really fast. Um, I think it's impossible to really look at somebody's slope if you don't start from the beginning. Um, you want to see that whole arc. So it's interesting. I've taken to, when I interview folks, um, you know, my, my first set of questions is basically, is really just tell me your story and let's spend two or three minutes talking about each place you've been. And, you know, maybe why did you decide on that job or why did you decide to leave? What are you proud of? And what's amazing is everybody's good at telling their story. 
Uh, it's hard to tell it backwards because you kind of do this weird thing where you back up two or three years and tell it forwards for a bit, and then you back up five years and tell it forward. So it, it's kind of disjointed. Um, so it's, it's always kind of bothered me with LinkedIn because I always I basically scroll to the bottom and then work my way up. Um, so yeah, oftentimes when I'm talking to people, they're like, oh, well, do you want me to start with what I'm doing right now? And it says, no, 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 no. Tell me about how you got passionate. You know, almost, you know, I tell you the stories of how I got into, um, you know, science. A lot of that stuff is great for understanding, you know, um, what people's passions were and how do they, how do they decide to change? I mean, a lot of people change, I mean, we all change our interests now. Um, I think it's fascinating to see why people make those decisions. Um, you know, when do people stick with it versus they decide to move on? Um, you learn a lot about, um, the personality somebody from that. You know, I, I thousand percent agree. So that's exactly what I did for years. The first thing I look at where they go to school, some people put their school at the top, some people put it at the bottom. So I look at the school first, not because I'm a school snob and it's just like, where they go? What did they study? And then I start from the bottom and work my way up the same exact thing. Cause I want to see their progression and where they went each step along the way to tell the story of where they are today. And then, that, so I completely agree. Um, now, you talked earlier, you know, even as a child, you were very organized, right? So do you have any, uh, you know, productivity hacks, anything that you would recommend to other founders to keep that schedule with, you know, aligned with some order? Geez, so I'm a big checklist person. Um, I probably used every project management checklist app out there. Um, you know, my bread and butter when I'm working with the team or for myself is always, you know, a checklist with, what is that item? Uh, and then when I'm going to, you know, what, when's my due date? Um, I know it sounds like that's probably underrated, uh, or doesn't, it's there's not much to it, but I think, uh, you know, when I'm communicating with our team, uh, or asking others to communicate with me, that's always the core of what I want. Um, which is just, Hey, what order are we going to work in? Um, you know, if we're working on a team, who's going to own what, um, and then committing to like dates. Um, I think something that is, I think some people have some, uh, they get a little nervous about is, well, geez, you know, uh, if I have to timeline things out, what if I'm wrong? I think one of the most underrated skills is being able to, um, you know, estimate and get good at forecasting, uh, how fast you're going to be able to move. Now, I remember reading, um, Ray Dalio's book a while back and, uh, you know, he talks about how in, in life, he would always make these checklists. And every time he had a project, it always took 50% more people and 50% more time than he thought it would take. So the reality is we're all terrible at estimating. Um, but it's a real skill to start to get good at it. Um, and I think as you, you know, as you grow, like one thing you want to get good at is bigger and bigger projects. So that's something that I'm working on is now that we're dealing, you know, I'm so used to like working, you know, almost day over day, week over week, um, for the scale Clavio is at now, I have to think in terms of, you know, months, years, sometimes multiple years. And to be honest, that's really hard. I mean, if you're off by 50%, then you could be talking about an extra year or two. Um, so getting good at that, I think is a real skill. Name, a, an app that you can't live without. So in terms of like where I do all my note taking these days, uh, I've been big into Notion recently. Um, do you know what, Keith? I've heard of it. I haven't used it. Yeah, um, it's pretty good. It's it's another one of these kind of it's it's very wiki like. Uh, it lets you. It's one of these uh, kind of no code like lets you keep a little bit of a database if you want. Um, yeah, I've also tried recently to just do a little bit more time tracking. Um, you know, every three or four months, I kind of reassess kind of my schedule, my calendar, and. Uh, one of the things I really try to fight against is I hate uh, when my calendar feels constrained. Like I like having big blocks of uninterrupted time. And so as you can imagine, it, it can happen where it's like you start getting all of these meetings and things that you're like, but it just feels like cruft. Uh, so anyways, I've been trying to be a little more intentional with my time. And so just even basic time tracking apps help with that. Any good um, podcasts or book recommendations that you would uh, suggest? So for those folks that I, I know three years and two people sounds like a long time, but uh, you know, still probably one of my all time famous favorite reads on entrepreneurship is shoe dog. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Phil Knight, I just remember the part where he says, Hey uh, you know, he'd gone to college, he'd gone to business school. He was five years out of business school, still doing Nike, living at home with his parents, had a job on the side just to keep it going. So if you're, if anybody knows like how much of a grind it takes to be successful, I think that's like one of my all-time favorite stories of, you know, Ed and I didn't know about that at the time, but you know, five years grinding away in your parents' house, uh, sometimes it takes a long time for things to happen. Um, so that's, that's one of my favorite stories. There's all, lots of other good gems in there too, but, um, one of my favorite stories of entrepreneurship. It's such a great book. And it's, it, I didn't hear what it was about 
meaning the time frame of the, the creation of Nike, like it was all about the early years where I thought it was about the Michael Jordan and, you know, them blowing up as a brand. And, but it was the exact opposite. And it was just such an amazing book where how many times Nike almost went out of business and how he had to float like inventory, payroll, whatever. It was just like, it was just like such grit. <laughs> totally. My, my other favorite one that I'll recommend, I haven't read this in a couple of years, but, um, uh, Tony Shea's book, Finding Happiness about Zappos is another great book. Um, just a great book on culture. And uh, that's, that's another story that it was not clear that Zappos was going to work out for a long, long time. Uh, but sticking with it and some just, you know, uh, sometimes it's just hard work to get from point A to point B. And um, yeah, it's a great story too. Building a business is hard. Outside of work, what do you, what do you like to do? Uh, so I have a two-year-old that takes up a lot of my time now. Uh, so, uh, starting to teach, <laughs> trying to figure out how early I can start teaching her, uh, all sorts of the nerdy things that I, you know, I love, uh, you know, math, science, all that kind of jazz. Um, really than that, like my kind of meditation is, uh, is running. So I've been a, a big runner for a long time. Um, it's great cause it's not really a mental exercise. It's just entirely kind of physical and, um, aerobic. Um, so yeah, most days I'm, I'm outside, uh, you know, listening to books and podcasts, um, but uh, yeah, that's mostly my jam outside of work. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for sharing all the great stories about building a company, the trials and tribulations, bootstrapping, building out that core foundation. Of course, super excited to see the continued growth of Clavio as this anchor tech company in the Boston tech scene. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.